You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, July 8th, 2015, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. Evan Bernstein. Hi, everyone. And we have a guest rogue this week, our good friend, George Robb. George, welcome back, man. How you doing? Good. Yeah, what? It's been like five episodes, so it's yeah. time. Geo! Serious. <laughs> Hi, guys. Hello. What's up, buddy? So this episode goes up while we're at TAM. You'll be emceeing the amazing mm-hmm. meeting. We'll be... Wait, what? Is that... That's on? That's happening? <laughs> Oh, oh yeah. Oh, I got to make some calls. All right. <clears throat> yeah, you better write all your bets. Yeah. In fact, while this show gets uploaded, we'll be almost literally on stage when this goes live. Usually I'll do it in the morning, if I remember, before we go on stage. <laughs> Someone remind Steve. Steve, put the show up. Oh, that's right. Damn it. <laughs> I always get so distracted when we're at these meetings. I get the show all ready and all keyed up to do it, so I literally have to like check one box and then I forget to do it. <laughs> You need a big like Boris Karloff knob or something that you can like throw. Like you need to like have a big switch mm-hmm. that you just throw to remind you of it's a big SGU switch. By the way, Boris Karloff, since you said it, how great a movie is Ed Wood? Just, oh, forget about wonderful it. Wonderful movie. My favorite it's, Johnny Depp movie. What? Totally. I never saw that. It's Damn. Awesome. Oh, it's awesome. my gosh. Bob. Really? Oh, it's my the God. Thing that, like gives gives you hope for Tim Burton. That exactly. He could do that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly like, right. Do, do more of that. Do that. That's good. Like, do those. That's fun. Yeah. Oh, and it's Nightmare great. Before Christmas, thing. too. <laughs> so you're going to get me started, George. It's good. That movie's so crazy good. I can watch all it right, forever. I, all right. That's a, a hole in my resume I've got to fill. Okay. All right. Well, we have a great show. We're going to start as we do, as we have been doing this year, with Bob's Forgotten Superhero of Science. Yeah. For this week's edition of uh, Forgotten Superheroes of Science, I'm going to talk about Earl Palmer, who was probably the most recorded session drummer in history and, more importantly, a major influence in the iconic sound of music which came to be known as rock and roll. Ever hear of him? Gio, don't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> so and I'm, I'm, I just want to say I'm so psyched that I'm actually doing this, which is a little bit unusual for me uh, with, with George here. It's, it's perfect. So music and entertainment was was part of Palmer's life from the beginning. This, this guy was a professional tap dancer at five years old. Five years old, he was a pro earning money doing that. And he was also on the black vaudeville circuit with his mom and aunt. So he definitely um, was involved and loved that that kind of life. But he, his passion, though, ultimately became drumming. His career kind of took off, say, in the 40s and 50s. And this is right when rock and roll was being born. Uh, that iconic sound was formed, although, you know, lots of different people contributed over the years. But uh, it's a really, it really wasn't one person. But there's an, an integral part of that sound of rock and roll that's based on what's called a backbeat. Have you guys ever heard of the, a backbeat? Sure, of course. Okay. Uh, so this, uh, <laughs> I learned it from a Beatles song, actually. Yes. Uh, yeah, I learned it yesterday. Um, this beat is considered a, a rhythmic foundation of the rock and roll sound. Essentially, one of its most important elements. It's essentially a four-beat measure. That stresses the second and fourth beats. Geo, can you demonstrate, please? (laughs) Exact, perfect. Wow, a whole measure. Done it better. So now, now, 
<laughs> yeah, we Palmer, take that for granted, but that is yeah, that was had somebody had to invent that. That's right. Now yeah. Palmer claimed that he was inspired to use that beat from one uh, from the one that was used in Dixieland music, for example, which was it was used intermittently. But that that specific beat clearly predates predates Palmer. Um, it was used in "Good Rockin' Tonight" by uh, Winoni uh, Harris in 1948. And there's also a clear backbeat can be heard in uh, Roland Pete by Pete Johnson and Big Joe Turner. And that's as far back as 38. But it was also in the, a very early jazz, swing, country music. It was in a lot of different places. The, you know, it was part of the drummer's vocabulary. They certainly knew about that. But the key difference uh, seems to be that these other music genres, while they m- may have used that backbeat, they used it sparingly and usually at the end of the song. Rock and roll used it throughout the entire song, and Palmer used it like a master right at the birth of rock and roll. So, and use it, he certainly did. He worked like he was a madman for for decades. This guy was so prolific and busy. The Musicians Union tracked how much Palmer uh, played for, let's say, a given year, say 1967. They said he played 450 dates in one year. I mean, that is busy. And he wasn't playing with just some band, some unknown band. This guy recorded and co-created hundreds of hits in thousands, literally thousands of, of rock, R&B, jazz sessions. He was all over the place. If you actually looked at his resume, it looks, it reads like a who's who. He drummed for Little Richard's uh, very early seminal work, Fats Domino, uh, like in uh, I'm Walking and The Fat Man. And The Fat Man is often cited as one of the very first rock and roll records ever made. Uh, there's also Righteous Brothers, You Lost That Loving Feeling, thousands of songs by the Beach Boys, Supremes, Marvin Gaye, Bobby Darin, Willie Nelson. He even did uh, TV themes, The Odd Couple, MASH, Brady. He drummed for that. Motion picture soundtracks, The Rose, It's a Mad, Mad, Mad World. I mean, it, the list just goes on and on. Oh, he, he drummed for producer Phil Spector and, and for Motown. Uh, and then a few a few more names: Richie Valens, Ray Charles, Frank Sinatra, The Monkees, Bonnie Raitt, Johnny Otis, Neil Young, Elvis Costello. The list just goes on and on. I'm just scratching the surface here. Uh, amazing. Little Richard wrote in his autobiography uh, that Palmer is probably the greatest session drummer of all time. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame website said he laid the foundation for rock and roll drumming with his solid stick work and feverish backbeat. Um, other people also expressed sentiments uh, like this one. It was Earl Palmer whose drumming transformed rhythm and blues into the full tilt thrust of rock and roll. And then on top of all that, he reportedly was the first person to use the word funky when describing to other musicians that their music should be made more beat-driven and danceable. So, reportedly one of the first guys to use that in that context. So, remember Earl Palmer? Mention him to your friends, perhaps when discussing the groove associated with syncopated accentuations of the offbeats in simple 4-4 rhythms. George, have you heard of this guy before? Yeah, yeah. He was part of the what's called the Wrecking Crew. And the Wrecking Crew, there's just a, a documentary actually just came out about this band. And uh, they're very similar to another band of musicians. There was a, a film a couple of years ago called Standing in the Shadows of Motown that dealt with the Motown backing band. They were called the Funk Brothers. And it was like 12, 15 guys that recorded every Motown song. Uh, amazing musicians. And the West Coast version of that was the Wrecking Crew. And Earl yes. was one of the drummers in the Wrecking Crew. Yes. Uh, there was another drummer in that band called Hal Blaine. Now, what's interesting is you said Earl's the most recorded drummer. There's a number of guys that all claim to be the most recorded drummers. Hal Blaine is another guy from the Wrecking Crew. 
uh, who worked with many of the same artists that, that Earl did just because he was sort of the guy in the, in the yeah. West Coast. There's a guy called Bernard Purdy. I talked about him on my podcast. Oh, yeah. I actually met him and the Purdy Shuffle. Uh, he, the Purdy Shuffle. He's, he is sort of self-proclaimed to be the most recorded hit, uh, drummer. There's another guy called John J.R. Robinson. He's the guy that played, um, We Are the World. He played on all of Michael Jackson's records. Um, so there's a couple guys that sort of claim this, and I think it's very hard to actually definitively say who is the most recorded. But one interesting thing I thought, uh, Hal Blaine had a habit of, uh, he had a rubber stamp he would bring and he would put it on the, he would stamp the music and it would say Hal Blaine strikes again. So people would know that Hal, Hal played drums on that session. Uh-huh. And then Bernard, Bernard Purdy, whenever he was in the studio, he would have these signs set up behind him that said, that's right. You've hired the hit maker. <laughs> this is, this is kind of like the, the pure balls of these guys. You got the moxie of these, of these gentlemen you have to really appreciate. Wow. But yeah, there's, there's countless artists like Earl Palmer that have been so incredibly influential and were there at the beginning. Um, and there's, those are the most interesting times to me as one genre kind of turns into another. And that, like, like you said, Bob, that idea of two and four was used throughout jazz. I mean, two and four was usually relegated to the hi hat, the little, the, the two symbols that are controlled by the foot. Uh, that would be your two and four be outlined there. And, and like you said, at the end of the song, you would get a big kind of boom, yeah. da-doom, 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 one, two, three, four, one, two, three. But to have it kind of laid down right from the start, those early guys were, were doing that. And it was still sort of, jazz it was still rhythm and blues and then it became rock and roll and it's really fascinating yeah george i also read that um it was actually considered uh poor taste to do that backbeat throughout the entire song uh you know before rock and roll of course it was actually they knew about it and they had actually thought about it but thought no that's this not that's not cool that's not the way to do it and it's how tastes change Oh yeah, even to do not to not do a swing pattern like the swing pattern on the cymbals would be dun 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 to not do that but just go dun 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 so it wouldn't be dun chakadum 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 it would just be doom chakadum 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 cha that was like a big 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 no no you had to have the swing rhythm because guys had been playing that swing rhythm for for thirty forty fifty years at that point um so yeah it's 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 amazing how stuff changes it sounds subtle but when you describe it like that it's it's quite significant. Oh yeah. yeah. That's why I love watching early like, you know, fifties TV when Elvis comes on and they have that little band that's playing and you can yes. so tell like which drummers are the ones that are sort of still, th- that's the thing about Ringo is like some say that Ringo uh, was sort of the definitive first fully rock and roll drummer without a jazz influence. Um, which I kind of like, you know, he had his, his, his hands ah. were matched. He had the sticks in both hands. They didn't have the traditional grip and he was all about that kind of straight rocking thing. Whereas a lot of the other guys were trying to modify their jazz chops to make it sound more, more rock or more R&B. It's interesting. It's really fascinating. And it also sounds like, and this is, I'm sure still the case, but maybe was it more back then where artists when they got into the studio, they hired professional musicians. It's not like they were there with their band, right? They just there was a same oh, absolutely. set yeah, of professional to, session musicians that worked exactly. on every record, pretty much. Yeah, that's why the whole hullabaloo with the monkeys, which was so bogus. Like you know, the monkeys oh. used the wrecking crew. You yeah. know, the monkeys came in yeah. oh. and they used the wrecking crew and they sang on top of what the wrecking crew recorded. And the wrecking crew was, 
you know, they played for Sinatra. They played for the birds. They played for, yeah. they played for, uh, Peter, Paul and Mary. They, I mean, they did everybody that was on the West coast. So when this sort of came out that, Oh, the monkeys, you know, they're not a real band. It's like, well, nobody was a real band back then. The Beatles, again, to bring up the Beatles were one of the first guys where it was like, they sort of said, we'd rather do this ourselves. And ring, you know, Ringo was replaced, uh, in the, for uh, love me do. It's a different guy playing drums. And really? that was like, they kind of, that, that solidified, like, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to play. We really don't care. Cause that was, that was done in the States. It was done in, in England. Um, any place that recorded, yeah, had their regular session guys that knew how to, re- how to record. Cause it's a really, it's a separate kind of art really? to be able to be a, absolutely. Yeah. It's funny how, how there's a huge difference between being able to play live and being able to play when you know you're being recorded. It's a psychological hmm. thing. It's the, it's the red light syndrome. We call it where like, as soon as you press record, I mean, you guys know it when you're, you know, you've been doing this for a while, but even when you, we record your voice, if you know that it's being recorded, there's a certain something different to, to how you approach it. And, and some guys can do it and some guys can't. And it's actually interesting to watch sometimes as amazing players fall apart when they're being recorded because it's just, they can't handle, they can't handle that sort of stress of the, the infinite or, or the timelessness of it. Like this is forever. We are going to record this and this is forever. Whereas <laughs> some people in you know, a live setting love live because it's like you get that instant feedback and you never repeat it. It's, it's there in the, in the moment and gone. And some guys are intimidated by that, you know, and mm. there's very few people that can do both really well. So yeah, it's, it was, it was all session guys forever. And the wrecking crew. If I'm correct, George, wasn't just a phenomenally huge collection of musicians? Yeah, it was like, it was like 12, depending how, depends on how you count or who, who's included, but it's like 12 to 20 guys that basically from like 19, gosh, 1960 to like 1975 or somewhere around there recorded sort of everything for Columbia. Well, Evan, Steve, you are going to give us an update on Pluto as our probe, the New Horizons. It gets closer and closer every day. Unfortunately, we're re- we have to record early because we're going to be traveling to the amazing meeting next week. Uh, when the show comes out, it'll be just past close approach. So as you're listening to this, there's a lot more information will have come out. But let's get, get our listeners up to date to this point. Yeah, as far as how today goes, uh, we're less – as of today, we're about seven days away from the historic flyby of the New Horizons probe. Of the dwarf planet Pluto. So cool. You know, as New Horizon has been getting closer and closer, the pictures that it's been sending back to Earth continue to captivate the world of planetary science. In fact, scientists are already making a map out of the pictures that the probe has been capturing with its cameras on board. Um, among the details in the photographs are revealing there are these light and dark patches at the equator of the planet, including one long, dark band that they're dubbing the whale Uh, so how cool would it how cool would it be to be part of the team that gets to come up with these new descriptions for all these new images new features that that we're seeing on a planet as we approach as we approach and there's going to be more coming obviously in the in the coming days (laughs) it there was a hiccup just a few days ago scary Uh, probe yeah the probe tripped itself into a protective safe mode and dropped communications with Earth for over an hour. But it reestablished communications, and uh, this was uh, purposefully designed to do exactly that. 
um, so as to, you know, be able to, uh, preserve, <laughs> preserve the mission and make sure that uh, nothing interferes with it, uh, with it booting itself back up in a sense. I'm going to yeah, say that now when I don't want to answer the phone, I'm just going to say, I'm sorry, I'm in a protective emergency mode. I can't talk to <laughs> you. I like that. You like well, Geo. I'm totally stealing that. Thank you. You say I'm fat? <laughs> so, so it wasn't like they were all sitting in mission control. La, la, everything's going and the screens went dark or whatever. And they're like, Oh my gosh, what the hell is going on? That they, they knew what was happening and they just really had to just wait it out, make sure, you know, and kind of bite their nails as it popped back up, which it did. Thank goodness. Um, and this is, this is impressive. Uh, this mission is nine and a half years to the date. So that's since launch. And then the conception goes. Uh, several years prior to that. So this thing's been going on for a couple, for almost a couple of decades now. And it's traveled about almost 5 billion kilometers. Woof. Wow. Oh my God. And the mission wow. has, the mission has just gone into what they're calling the encounter mode of the mission. This is it. This is the pay dirt coming up. So awesome. Finally. Now it's finally more than just a damn pixel. The Pluto system is very interesting. First, I'm sure, as a lot of our listeners know, Pluto and Charon are really a double planetary system. Right. Or I guess double, double dwarf. Right. Dwarf, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, the because ratio of their sizes to the, each other. The, the point about which they revolve is the actually outside of Pluto. It's not within the surface of Pluto. So if that's your definition, you know what I mean? So Pluto and Charon are revolving about each other, and that point is outside, is beyond the surface of Pluto itself. So that's a reasonable dividing line for just calling it a, a double system rather than a planetoid moon system. Also, uh, there's a lot of stuff that, you know, that we are set to learn about this. So remember that Pluto has five moons, if you include Charon as a moon. The other four are Styx, Kerberos, Nix, and Hydra. Those four are really just rocks. I mean, they're so much smaller than Charon. Uh, it's possible that Charon collided with Pluto and that the other four known moons... Ah, uh, debris. Wow. Debris. Yeah. Interesting. Cool. The probe, as it passes you know, through the system, will get some close flybys of, of a lot of the moons. It's going to get a view of Pluto's atmosphere... Pluto has a very thin atmosphere. It has methane in the atmosphere. We know that. One interesting puzzle is that the atmosphere is getting thicker as Pluto gets farther away from the sun, which is not what we expected. Ooh, whoa. So we don't know what's going on there. And mm -hmm. it should get a close enough look of Charon to see if Charon also has an atmosphere. We don't know. We've never detected an atmosphere on Charon. But this close flyby will tell us. Now, here's one disappointing thing. Oh, God, what? So what they're doing is... As the probe gets closer to its close approach, they're actually going to – the first thing they're going to do is do, a, is do a little mini data dump to Earth mm -hmm. to send us as much data as it can before it goes through the system. In case it hits something? In case it hits something. In case oh. we lose it because it's just you – know, there could be a lot of debris there. Gee. And it's going to use all of its energy, all of whatever its resource, limited resources are – gathering photographs, you know what I mean, collecting data. Right. It won't be sending us any data, however, until it goes through the system, and then it will start sending us data again. And it's going to take 26 months to send us all the data that it collects. What? As it, it goes through the system. Obviously, we'll be it's getting stuff data. all the time. You know, I'm sure that they'll you know, make sure that we'll get some cool photographs right away, but it's actually going to take 26 months to send all the data 
to Earth. Wait, it's why good. so? It's a lot of data, Bob. Yeah. We're ta- Here's what we're talking about. 5,000 times as much data uh, than the Mariner gave us from Mars yeah. at the time. And, and, and over what? I mean, just so much further a distance. So it's totally understandable that it's, it's going to take a old, long old, time. internet But So do we know how many terabytes it is? Uh, I, do, I haven't seen that number. I'm sure it's out there somewhere. 27 months. How, how many exabytes is it? Jeez. This is cool. We are going to know so much more about the Pluto system in a few months. We've known so we, little. I know. know it's now. Just, gosh. It's exciting. I, how close are they going to get? Does anyone have a sense of that? I mean, yeah. what kind of. Yes. Uh, t- closest distance uh, for pass by of, the, of Pluto will be 12,500 kilometers. Yes. Oh, wow. Nice. Which is just about the distance of Charon from Pluto. Right, right. Makes sense. Now, oh, is it true man. that Cthulhu lives on Pluto? <laughs> well, that's one of the questions that we're going to answer, you know. Definitively, yes. Yeah. We'll see any Finally. I'm guessing, I'm after 80-something, no. what, 90 years of waiting for that? Pluto, the whole system is named after the underworld. Yeah. Yes. Sticks. Yes, yes. The yeah. river sticks. The idea is that you're beyond our solar system is sort of the heavens and then as you enter the, the solar system, you're entering the corruptible mortal realm. And so Pluto is like the gateway to the underworld, which is the rest of the solar system. So, George, I understand New Zealand just illegalized trolling. What's that about? And I don't mean fishing off the back of your boat. I mean internet trolling. And you don't mean, and you don't mean living under bridges. Right. <laughs> so internet trolls can face up to two years jail time now. Uh, they have a new law which bans, quote, harmful digital communications. Now, what does that mean? What are harmful digital communications? And they say this can mm-hmm. include truthful as well as false information. Wow. Oh, boy. Uh, including intimate hell. visual recordings, such as nude or semi-nude pictures or video shared without permission. It's one of these things which kind of sounds like a really good idea. Uh, right. Until you start maybe thinking about it. But uh, <laughs> it was all triggered by uh, a bunch of kids apparently were publishing, uh, were posting photos of, the, of, of women that they had been sort of hunting down and trying to be intimate with. There was a thing called the Roast Busters Scandal. A group of teenage boys from Auckland were accused of sexually assaulting uh, drunk underage girls and boasting about the acts on social media. So sort oh, of embar- embarrassing these, these, these women. So, right. you know, that's a horrible thing that, yes, you should not be allowed to do. Uh, but apparently there's a concern about this in that for news reporters, so that something which you could report in a newspaper about, let's say, a politician being indecent with someone or doing some kind of act which would be embarrassing, uh, if you post that online, might fulfill what they're calling harmful digital communication. So it's raising a couple questions, and they're and they're wondering how they're going to necessarily do it. But uh, if you get if you get convicted of this, two years prison and a fifty thousand dollar fine, and a business that's uh, sort of helping facilitate this uh, could uh, pay two hundred thousand dollar New Zealand dollar fine. So like an internet provider might be might be held responsible if someone posts something nasty um, mm. or 
seen as being harmful. Yeah, the question is, though, who decides that? Yeah, a good question, yeah. Exactly. I guess it's like any kind of indecency, you know, thing or litigious... Uh, uh, defamation. You know, li- li- defamation or lying in public or whatever. I mean, I'm assuming those that enters into it. But the thing is, is that take, for example, these girls from this thing that happened. I mean, they were drunk. So it's like there's there's elements of truth to it. Not to excuse it, of course, but but just... It's just a it's just a bit of a, a weird gray area. We want to not have people. What I just I just saw a story about revenge porn. Uh-huh. Yeah, and have you know uh-huh. where where someone will take someone within a relationship when the relationship ends takes the material from that relationship that might have been generated in terms of photos or videos or whatever posts them online and how it's incredibly difficult to get that stuff taken down. Yeah. If you are the other person in the relationship, that should obviously be illegal or not allowed, or at least be somehow you should be able to prosecute. Do you know how you get it down? You've got to send, I'm not sure who you have to send it to, but you have to send the people who would make this decision. You have to send them naked pictures of you so they can make sure that it's you. Well, yeah, I mean, John Oliver talked about copyright too, right? Yeah, Yeah, you have to to claim your body as copyright, and and in the application for copyright, you have to include a nude photo of yourself. Which is ridiculous. So, what the hell? <laughs> I, yeah, I, I get the idea here. Is uh, but I think I get the sense that this was written by a bunch of older, clueless legislators who like yeah, quite quickly probably yeah, nothing about the digital yeah, age, aren't yeah. intimate with culture online and just see it's like oh, why are people being mean? We got to stop them from being mean, you know, kind of stuff. I think that there should be a threshold. I would not use the term trolling or uh, as the yeah. threshold because. That is smack dab in the middle of the gray area. Yeah. yeah. Bullying, maybe. Why not just bullying? Open-ended. Yeah, bullying. Yeah, cyberbullying. Yeah, they use, they use yeah. that term. I would say harassment. You know, okay, is that's, that's probably yeah. a safer threshold. So clearly, if you are posting naked photos or whatever of people without their permission, there needs to be some remedy to that. That, that should be illegal. If you are threatening somebody's life, you know what I mean? If you are if you are making threats, I think that that is already Ill- illegal. But it just it should be easier to take action against somebody who is using online social media or communication in order to like actively harass somebody um, or uh, make open threats against them. But just saying harmful digital communications, whoa, that is so open ended. That, that could be almost anything. And yeah, absolutely, that could have a chilling effect on legitimate journalism and there is no journalism exception in this law so those are, i think the right. two big things that it's being criticized by there's no journalism exception and it's so broad and vague as is often the case with laws like this the devil's in the details right it's all going to be determined by the first few cases and yep. and the precedents that are set on how to interpret this yeah. law um yeah. so you won't really know until the law gets put into use and we see how the court's are interpreting it, but whoa, this is I think an inartfully drafted law to borrow. Oh my god, it's so naive. Term. It, yeah. It's so naive. They need to spell it out clearly. This is just so vague and gray. That's it's like you have no idea where it's going to go. Yeah, I mean, think about it. I mean, think about you know, harmful, truthful but hurtful communication could apply to pretty much all skeptical activism, right? She was. Yeah, or uh, any kind of commentary, any yeah. kind of, you know, or any kind of uh, cartoon even. Satire. Like that's that's yeah. satire. I mean, that's all. There is a there is a stinging 
nature to satire and and political commentary. You know, yeah. is that and harmful? If history plays out, this doesn't bode well for this law, and there's going to be problems no. down the road. Uh, the bill passed the New Zealand Parliament with an overwhelming 116 to five. Oof. Oh, my God. Almost everyone. How are you going to vote against it? Because then when you're trying to get reelected, they'll be able to say, you yeah. voted against the uh, the harassment bill. Yeah. It's like, well, yeah, but it was a crappy bill. Yeah. Right. <laughs> do, do they make even any attempt to distinguish between public and private people? Right? I didn't say anything about it. There, there are lots of nuances to it like that. But yeah, are you a private person or a public person? Is this – are you – is the person engaged in the speech engaged in – uh, activism or speech in the public interest or journalism or commentary or satire, whatever. In the U.S., because we have, you know, First Amendment free speech rights, there is a vast, which I'm now more familiar with than I ever thought yeah. I would have to be, there's <laughs> yeah, a yep. vast law dealing with free speech and, and, you know, how that is protected in all sorts of ways and for, and which is good. Although again, it could still be financially ruinous to defend your free speech, but the, the legal precedent is there. I'm just not familiar with the, the laws in New Zealand. The thing about New Zealand, though, there's only like seven computers there. Yeah, so. that's true. <laughs> they, have, oh. they have terrible broadband. You guys remember we were there? Oh, it's horrible. Uh, right. it was, it was a bit rough. Well, I guess we're a little but. spoiled being here. Like we go, you go to a hotel in the U.S. Either you just get free Wi-Fi or you get charged a nominal fee in which is you know, just the cost of your room. You know, you tack on 10 bucks or whatever and that's you, yep. get, you get the Wi-Fi. In both Australia and New Zealand, we were down there. It's a cap. Um, they put a cap they on cap it. it. Oh, they cap it. They capped it and then billed us, what, hundreds of dollars for the overusage? Yeah, it's like and it's a ridiculously uh, low cap. It's like, oh, that was just for like five whatever gigabytes or something. I, it was something. Your daughters watched two episodes of SpongeBob <laughs> or something and used up all the bandwidth. <laughs> yeah, but apparently, because they, you know, they have to, I guess, connect it with big cables under the ocean, you know, to the rest of the world, because you know, New Zealand's an island. It was uh, draconian. We we were not used to it. It was funny. All right. Well. Did you guys see the new Seralini study? Yes. Yeah. Oh, I love those cakes. You know, you buy them in the package. <laughs> who, who, who? Nobody doesn't like Seralini. <laughs> right. So Seralini was the author of the infamous study where he claimed that feeding rats GM uh, feed caused them to have more tumors. Uh, it was a terrible study. Highly criticized for a lot of reasons. He used rats that had a high baseline rate of tumors and too few rats, and it was just horrible. Uh, the study was pulled. It was retracted by the journal because it was terrible. And then Seralini had to hunt around for another journal to publish it. So now he's published another study. And guess what? Now, plus one. He, this is how, Whoa. Which is actually like, you know, a real journal. Legit. Uh, and this one is just as crappy. Why they um, publish it then? So yeah, that's right. Like <laughs> people are saying, really, plus one? Did you published this? What the hell? So in this study, he's looking at the feed that is fed to laboratory rodents, and he found that a one to six. So he looked for contamination for pesticides, heavy metals, and PCBs. He found that. Of the 262 pesticides that they measured, all of the diets were contaminated between one and six of them. I wasn't very impressed with that. One to six out of 262. Uh, heavy metals, two to three out of four, mostly lead and cadmium. 
uh, PCBs 5 to 15 out of 18. And out of 22 GMOs tested for, Roundup-tolerant GMOs were the most frequently detected, constituting up to 48% of the diet. So he's basically claiming with this research that all uh, animal studies using rodents is completely flawed because the feed contains GMO and pesticides and contaminants. But the, yeah, at, at what obvious, levels, though? Yeah, but God, what, what levels? Uh, uh, you got it. Hey. <laughs> Don't – let's not bicker and argue about little details like, you know, what the actual <laughs> doses are. But, but Steve, it's also, study. if he's saying – if he's saying that the, the his conclusions are calling into question the validity of all of that science that was done with all yeah. of those rats. Yep. yep. What about the successful studies that, that you can replicate and that are real? You know, like you can't say that they didn't they weren't conducting legitimate science. Well, so but keep in mind if you if you're coming at this from an anti GMO perspective, um, safety studies essentially find no difference between control and the GMO feed, for example. And he's saying, well, that's because it's all GMO. So the fact that there's no difference means nothing. So all safety data with a negative outcome, meaning they're safe, is now called into question. But you can't really get that conclusion from his study. What he didn't do was compare the control feed, which is what he's saying, that he's testing, right? Essentially control feed, the feed that would be fed to control rats in the study. He didn't compare that to feed that has been specifically formulated to be free from all of these things, right? So we don't know from his from his data that there's any negative effect from these small levels of contaminants that he's finding in the feed. So this could mean absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. So you really can't make the conclusions that he's making from the data that he collected. Which is sort of his signature, you know, is that he collects data, then he makes these claims that are like, what the hell? How do you get those conclusions from the data that you're pulling? So also keep in mind, like at least for the GMO, right? There was no GMO feed 20 years ago and ah. before. So if there was a negative effect from GMOs in, in laboratory animal feed, don't you think we would have picked up this sort of shift 20 years ago because we went from yeah. 0% GMO to like 90% GMO pretty much overnight, right? With a very short period of time in terms of animal feed. So if he's saying that laboratory, that includes laboratory animals or that half, you know, that half of the, of the control feed is contaminated with GMOs, we would have picked that up 20 years ago because that would have been a sudden dramatic shift in the feed if there was any effect. Right. So you're saying it would be obvious because of how profuse it is. Well, yeah. I mean, first of all, scientists – you know, track their laboratory animals very closely because that's what they're studying. You know, they have to be very familiar with the health and everything about their laboratory animals. It's not like they wouldn't have noticed this. So the the paper is t- is so bad. I mean, it's getting criticized from scientists around the world. The the genetic literacy project uh, has a uh, will link to this has a summary of criticisms of the methodology here and the conclusions. So essentially what they what the other thing is that they were doing is that they were using as their threshold for for quote unquote toxicity uh the safety limits set for humans. The problem with this is that the human safety limit there's typically a 100 fold or a two order of magnitude buffer 
that is added in there. Let's say, like, for example, that uh, laboratory animals show toxicity at 100 micrograms. The, the safety limits for humans will be set at one microgram, one hundredth of the dose that caused any effect in order to build in a huge safety buffer. Okay. But Seralini mm -hmm. was using the one microgram level as the level of quote-unquote toxicity, not the oh. hundred microgram level. He should have Give been using— break. He should have been using the level at which there is no observed effect, the no observed effect level or NOEL. Um, so he used the wrong level basically by a hundred fold. What's his end game here? Like what's his, what is he trying to, I know, I mean, it's is, right. Is it, I, you know, is it a book? Is, is it a, is it like, is it research funding? Is it notoriety? Is it what? Like what's the, I think it's ideology. I think he's anti GMO. Ideology. Oh, okay. All right. He's, he's anti GMO. Yeah. And, and we see this frequently. Okay. Uh, you know, when I wrote about this for my blog, I pointed out that, we often will see, if you look at any, especially question like this, where there is some kind of public health issue or there's some kind of ideological angle to it, oftentimes you'll see that like the entire research community is coming up with one answer. And then there's this one guy over here who's coming up with a, the opposite answer. Like the, the, there's an outlier. Just the, right, they're the right. only lab that can find that there's a negative effect. Like, for example, yeah. with cell phones and cancer. You know, pretty much the research is negative, but there's this one group who consistently finds a connection, but they're the only ones who are doing that. Or there's that Canadian researcher who thinks that electricity causes a whole, all kinds of diseases. But she, you know, she's the, whenever you see a paper that shows a connection, she, her name is always on it. You know what I mean? Uh, right. And anti-vaccine, there's a small set of anti-vaccine researchers who, if you, read a paper that says there's some kind of risk to vaccines or link with autism, you can, I can guarantee you like there's one of three people's names are going to be on that paper. They're outliers that, that seem to have an ideological ax to grind. Um, and, but of course they can get disproportionate attention from the media. It's like that one guy at a party who loves to dance, but hates Michael Jackson records. <laughs> yeah. well, yeah, I mean, one outlier. What's the matter George, with you? What's the matter with you? George, I would imagine <laughs> that some of these people are motivated. Their results are off because they want them to be off. Well, sure, but but I mean, but like, but is it? What is his thing? Like, I'm gonna I'm gonna be n notorious. I'm gonna be known for this because I'm an outlier. Or is it like? And the thing that you don't want to, you know, here's my anti-GMO pill collection that you can take for four hundred dollars a month. Or oh, is like, he selling something? That's yeah. what I mean. Like, what? Well, what is the end? Is which, it just not right? speaking of which, George, mm. the icing on the cake. Yeah. One yeah. of the funding sources for Seralini's study was a company that makes homeopathic remedies, oh. including homeopathy detox for pesticides. Oh, for the very my. things hey, that what he's a strange coincidence. For. What? And get this get when get he sent his pre publication uh, version of the paper to the media two weeks before it was published. Mm -hmm. Now, usually you do that like two days before it gets published, right? You send the media. It's like, all right, we're going to publish this in two days so that you have a chance to do your research and write your articles. But there's a blackout period. You know, don't you can't publish your studies, your can't talk your, about yeah, it. your your articles about this until whatever this time. In in his case, there was a two week delay, which was interesting. And and what it seems like that plus one. 
delay, there was a delay because Plus One wanted him to make some changes. So one change because the media, of course, they got the version from him two weeks ago and then they could see what was published. In the version the journalists got two weeks ago, he didn't disclose the conflict of interest that he was funded by a homeopathy company that makes detox you know, products for these uh-huh. chemicals he's testing for, but it was in the, the published version. So clearly the journal made him put in the D conflict of interest disclosure, but he didn't do it initially. Being funded by a homeopathy company, I mean, you know, uh, you almost yeah. don't need to say any more. Yeah, that. there's a, all sorts of things <laughs> going wrong with this whole thing. But I guarantee you, this is now added to the list, right? This, you'll, the anti GMO. Crowd, yeah, this is it. This is you'll, you'll, oh, yeah. you'll, they still cite his older studies. They still cite those few crappy studies that say what they want to say. This, this is you know, you could also say that's what the that's the whole point of this is just to provide fodder for this ideological position, even if it's crap. Which is again what we see with the anti-vaxxers. You know, it's what we see with you know any of these ideological groups. Okay, well, everyone, we're going to take a break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week. The, the great, great courses. The great <laughs> courses. Jay, you've been listening to uh, my course on medical myths, lies, and half-truths. What we think we know may be hurting us. Steve, I've been listening to you talk my entire life. Yeah, that's true. But this actually <laughs> didn't bother me because you were saying <laughs> that were, were interesting. No, it was good. It was really good. I, I mean, I've watched pieces of it before. Um, I remember when you were recording it and you know we were talking every night um, about it and what happened that day and how, how like rigorous their method is to get the best out of you and the, you know optimize the content. It really is an awesome, awesome course. You guys, everybody should watch this. Yeah, without a doubt, Steve, your course is great. There are tons of other great courses in the Great Courses series, and you can watch or listen to them with online downloads, streaming via the apps, DVDs, CDs, however you need to hear it. They'll get it to you. And we have a special limited time offer for our listeners. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> order, order from eight of the Great Courses best-selling series, including Medical Myths, Lies, and Half-Truths, at up to 80% off the original price. 80%. That just blows me away every time I read it. But this 80% savings is only available for a limited time, so please hurry up. So don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash skeptics and get your 80% off. That's right, Lottie. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. So, Jay, I uh, hear there's some a recent study that looks at biological age. That's quite interesting. Yeah, researchers at Duke University, led by Daniel Belsky, who is an assistant professor of medicine at Duke University School of Medicine's Division of Geriatrics, conducted a multi-year study published in the Proceedings of National Academy of Sciences. It's a real journal, that, by the way. It, it is a real journal. Just a funny name. Uh, they did they did a study on over 800 people who are from the same town and they're the same age, born between 1972 and 1973. So you know the the concept is like they belong to the same class, right? It's called a cohort. Yeah, cohort. They tested these people at uh, three different ages: 26, 32, and 38. And they concluded the 38 year test. And they included 18 physiological markers of risk for age related chronic diseases. That included quite a number of different things. Some of them are like, you know, kidney function, lung capacity, liver function, your immune system. Uh, They tested their heart health, metabolism, cholesterol, blood pressure, body mass index, 
inflammation, the length of the telomeres. <laughs> telomeres. 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 I know. I just I read it the way that I, I thought it, and I, but I know how to say it. Don't make fun of me. For those of you who don't know, these are the protective caps that are on the end of your chromosomes. And lots of people believe that these, are, these have something to do with age or aging. So they did these deep dive tests on these people at, the, at different ages, and they tracked all the results. So 30 of the test subjects died of varying causes, like you know, some people died of diseases like cancer. Other people died from accidents. Some other people died of suicide. Uh, so what the researchers found was a huge variability in the test subjects' biological age versus their chronological age. The idea here is that they were testing the people to see how biologically, quote-unquote, old they were versus their chronological age. And this is really cool, guys. Some people showed little or no sign of aging at the end of the test age of 38 when they started at 28, meaning that they Hmm. didn't biologically age the 10 years that they lived. How about that? And this means that they didn't seem to age... Not only did they not seem to age during that time, they, they were just basically staying right where they were biologically, as we would expect a teenager to, to – how much would a teenager change over the course of a few years, right? But the majority of the participants were, were noted that they did age appropriately with their chronological age. The scientists observed something really interesting, though. They, they observed that people aged on the outside – accurately or in sync with how they aged on the inside. So hmm. outward-looking age matches inward aging biologically. Hmm. Whoa, interesting. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? Very. The study stated that those who aged more rapidly were less physically able, showed cognitive decline and brain aging, self-reported worth, worse health, and looked older. So they found that 20% of aging was affected by someone's genes, and this is actually good news because 80% the other 80% of aging could actually be treated, according to the researchers. Now, I want you guys to understand, though, that a portion of these people actually aged in those 10 years so much that they seem to be about 60 years old. Oh, my God. Could you imagine? Yeah. Did they they correlate that with any kind of lifestyle behaviors? That's a great point, Steve. So what they said was, Belsky said the next step in the study is is, is determine if having you know a healthy diet, low in fat, and you know proper weight management, regular exercise, stress management, they're going to track all of these things. You know, unhealthy uh, lifestyle habits, and they're going to see if those those had any effect on the people who aged or didn't age. You know, I think it's a safe guess that they're going to see a connection between poor lifestyle habits. You know, diet, exercise, all of those, you know, the ones that are so obvious probably yeah. are going to have an effect. But I mean, just think about this though. The, the age, the biological age difference between the exact people that grew up in the same town that are the same age was the difference between 28, a 28 year old and a 60 year old. Wow. Yeah. That, I mean, that, 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 that seems like a lot. That That's like huge. a big difference. Fiction. And you always have to ask, well, what markers are they using and how, definitive are those markers of aging? Um, and are they looking at all the things they need to look at? So I, I do believe that there are some significant differences. It's hard to put a number on it like that, though. You know what I mean? Well, well, I, you know, I, what I think, Steve, is like they're saying, okay, medical science knows, you know, what, what liver function should be in a 20-year-old versus a 60-year-old. There is a difference. Yeah. There is a decline that's measurable and that is predictable. And they're saying, okay, we've studied these people for a decade, over a decade, 
12 years, they are showing varying signs of de- degrees of eight biological aging, and they're comparing the results to other studies that were done on people in other age groups. Yeah, I get it. Just there's a hundred things you could you could choose to follow, so you may not get the same results. You know, if if you look look at other physiological outcome measures. Well, you know, I don't think they're making any like phenomenal claims here, other than you know there is a correlation that they're finding, and they're going to be doing further studies. You know, and they're also doing something that hasn't been done in other studies. They, they're they're studying aging in young people, not. Old people. Yeah. No, I hear you. I mean, I think the, the bottom line is what this study shows is that there could be a significant difference in at least these markers of aging, even in people of the same age cohort. I get that. Certainly, my experience as a physician is consistent with that. I mean, because remember, I see dozens of patients a week. I know all of their ages and I examine them. So I, I have a pretty large set of personal observation in terms of evaluating people's health at different ages. What I've observed is that, you know, people get to about 30 and it doesn't really matter. You could coast to 30, you know what I mean? And even with, with any, with wait, 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 to be clear, with any poor lifestyle. Yeah, with, mean, yeah, right? with even, no matter what their lifestyle is, they don't really start to separate out. Unless you're like really trash, like, you know, you're a heroin addict or something. But barring the real extremes, you know, for most people, they will still be generally healthy through their 20s, even if, you know, they don't have good lifestyle compared to people who do. They won't necessarily be athletic, but they'll be more or less healthy. But then in their 30s, people start to really separate out. And by the time you get to like 40 and 50 – you could see a huge difference between people who take care of themselves mm. and people who don't take care of themselves. I mean, really massive. Like sometimes I see people who are in their forties. I'm like, whoa! I would have guessed that you were sixty. You know? Wow. Yeah. So there it is. And yeah, sometimes I see p- patients who, and we even say that in the record, patient looks older than stated age. That's an observation that we make when it's you know dramatic enough, because it says something about the overall health of the individual, or. Uh, sometimes patients look phenomenally younger. Like I see 70-year-olds like, crap, you could be 50, you know? Mm-hmm, like they're just yeah. in phenomenally good shape for somebody their age. Is there a correlation, Steve, you're finding? Yeah. You oh, know, yeah. Is, what oh, is yeah. it? Give me so, the – uh, I mean some of the big things are uh, – so being very overweight is terrible uh, for people. Alcohol use is probably the big one. People who use wow. – Yeah, who use a lot of alcohol just wreck themselves. Smoking is bad. Uh, lack of sleep. How about people that attend a lot of musicals or do jazz hands like too much? Yeah, I don't have a large data set on jazz hands. It's not part of the standard neurological exam. <laughs> George might have more data kill on that. George, what do you think about jazz jazz hands, George? I, I, it's If jazz hands are on corpses, that's when I usually like them the most. So uh, it's hard to tell someone's age when they're, when they're a corpse. <laughs> yeah. so I think they're deadly. Just don't do it, guys. Yeah. It, this reminds me of the, the thing about Charlie Parker, the, the jazz saxophonist when he died. He was 34, but the coroner wow. estimated him at like 50 or 60. Yeah. You know, the, the coroner had no idea who he was, and this guy, this old guy came in, and they were like, oh, old, you know, uh, uh, whatever, male, age 50 to 60. He was 34. But, you know, heroin, booze, no sleep, <laughs> yep. and uh, a lot of sax playing. That'll do it. Yeah. No, yep. it, it really does have have an effect. All right. Well, Jay, it's time for Who's That Noisy? Last time I played you guys one of, you know, I, w- I would say it's one of my favorite sounds. And I will play it again for you. I wanted George to hear it, see if George recognizes this. 
Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Definitely. So you, you, familiar, you do Jay. It. So yeah, familiar, man. I can't place that's, it. That's my my spleen every morning as I wake <laughs> up. <laughs> All, right, so, all right. So this is fascinating. This is this is awesome. So that scream was first used in a 1951 Gary Cooper movie called The Distant Drums or Distant Drums. Gary and Cooper. This th- that you know to us very recognizable sound uh, was was written in the script uh, as a guy walking through a swamp and he gets bitten by an alligator, dragged underwater by an alligator. They later recorded all of these secondary uh, sounds in the studio after the movie was shot, and that's where this sound came from. Wow. The thing that that's interesting is that sound has been used in hundreds of movies and TV Wait, shows. Wait, hundreds, hundreds? Hundreds. Star Thousands. Wars, Lord Thousands of the Rings, probably, right? Pirates of the Caribbean, Harold yeah. and Kumar go to White Castle, Toy Story, oh. Reservoir Dogs, Titanic, Anchorman. It it was it's been used on TV shows, it's been used on, in cartoons. It is just one of the sound effects that has has become you know, it's kind of like a meme in a sense that a lot of people know about it, particularly people in the industry. Sound designers want to, yeah, they want to use it. It's sort of a joke to them to, to incorporate. It, yeah, it is a joke. Yeah. Exactly. You know, that sound effect has, you've heard it. it in all these famous movies, you know it. That's why it sounds familiar. And when you watch a video, and I just recommend right away, go to YouTube and type in the Wilhelm yell or the Wilhelm scream. Scream, yeah. And and you'll come up with a video that shows you all the movies that it's in, and it almost gets comical. You're like, wait a second, that you know, the one a freaking stormtrooper does it. You know what I mean? <laughs> so now moving on to this this week's Who's That Noisy? Take a listen to this. I thought this was really interesting. Got a long tail. Hell yeah. <laughs> yep. That's that's the whole point. What is that? That's uh, the that's the question. Wow. If you think you know the answer, email me at WTN at the If you don't know the answer, email me at WTF at the Steve, <laughs> I'll I'll share that file with you. Well, we have uh, a dumbest thing of the week this week. And it's not George, right? And it's not George. In fact, Wait, this what? is a this. You might say this is a <laughs> dumb and dumber thing of the week. Mm, ah, yeah. clever. Perfect. Thank you, Jim Carrey. I'll say no more. Yeah, Jim Carrey has uh, been tweeting, uh, and he was not happy apparently about California passing uh, the law that bans non-medical exemptions for vaccines. So uh, listen to this. He tweeted. Well, he he wrote California. Governor says yes to poisoning more children with mercury and aluminum and mandatory vaccines. This corporate fascist must be stopped. And then he goes on to write, they say mercury in fish is dangerous, but forcing all of our children to be injected with mercury and thimerosal is no oh risk. Makes sense? I am not oh anti-vaccine. My. Anyone who says that is almost guaranteed to be anti-vaccine, by the way. <laughs> I am not anti-vaccine. I am anti-thimerosal, anti-mercury. They have taken some of the mercury-laden thimerosal out of vaccines, not all in all caps. The CDC can't solve a problem. They help start. It's too risky to admit they have been wrong about mercury thimerosal. They are corrupt. Go to traceamounts.com. Watch the documentary and judge for yourselves. If you really care about the kids, you will. It's shocking. Yeah. 
Um, so there's so much wrong here, but let's unpack it a little bit. If Jerry, if Jerry Brown is anything, he's a fascist corporate. Yeah, right. Jerry okay. That's the first thing you think of when you corporate, think of Jerry Brown. Corporate fascist. Corporate yeah. fascist, which in and of itself is a very interesting voted. label. Kerry may not be aware that <laughs> the all of the thimerosal was removed from the childhood vaccine schedule in the United States in 2002. Yeah, That's only- 13 years ago. All of it. <laughs> thimerosal only remains in multi-dose flu vaccines, not the live virus vaccine, only the and not the single dose injectable, but only the multi, the multi-dose injectable, which is completely voluntary. Isn't there also the the difference between ethyl mercury and methyl mercury? Isn't that like yeah, kind of, yeah, like yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but, but that's yeah. the that's the next point. But so yeah. he's he is ranting about be kids being force injected with thimerosal when the vaccines that are mandatory don't have thimerosal. He's just completely factually wrong about that. Uh. Uh, and he's shilling for this movie, this mockumentary is traceamounts.com, you know, which is just a, you know, a completely pseudoscientific documentary ginning up some connection, you know, between vaccines and, and neurological problems, but it's, it's all, it's all anti-vaccine propaganda nonsense. So he's just dead wrong. Uh, the measles vaccine, by the way, the MMR vaccine never had thimerosal ever, you know, so the one that prompted the, the passage of this bill. Um, yeah, so George, you are correct. The mercury in fish is methyl mercury. The mercury in thimerosal is ethyl mercury, which is much less toxic and is more easily excreted. Right. So yeah, we do try Details. to yeah, limit the amount, the total burden of mercury that people get exposed to, which is why out, out of an abundance of caution, the CDC, you know, re- mandated the removal of thimerosal from the, from the, the schedule, the, the vaccine schedule. Again. Steve, but what about the mercury that was on like 50s TV show called uh, Ethel Merman? Now, that was bad. Ethel Merman? Yeah. I, I like Methyl Merman better. <laughs> <laughs> or Methyl Ermin, I guess. <laughs> um, so, uh, George, I'm trying one, over here. One, okay? per, one percent of our listening audience <laughs> yeah. might know who Ethel Merman was. So, I mean, there, there, there's so many jokes that could be said about this, that like kids get more mercury in breast milk than they do in vaccines. Why? Hello. So if they're doing it right, they do. Yeah. <laughs> mothers right. are poisoning their children. This is despicable. Yep. That's right. Well, that's, that's why yep. pregnant and nursing mothers should minimize their seafood intake to try to minimize their mercury intake. So, yeah, no one doubts that mercury is a toxin. Absolutely. And you should try to minimize exposure. Absolutely. But the amount that was in thimerosal was minuscule. It was too low to cause any toxicity. And it's been studied to death and there's no correlation with any problem. And it's gone anyway. That's the other thing. It's like, get over <laughs> right. it. It's not even it was I know. That's the thing. He tweeted a picture of a, of a yeah. child with autism. And the parent of that child, I guess he found some image somewhere of a, yeah. of a child with autism. And I, I forget exactly what he said, but it was like, this is, see, this is what's happening. And the parent of that child got in touch and was like, um, my child had autism before th- uh, he got a vaccine. So I'd like, stop using my kid's picture for your propaganda. So he apo- oh, uh, right. Jim wow. Carrey apologized. Good. But like, he can't even, you know, he's just so randomly just Dope. picking stuff and, and playing on pure emotional response. Mm-hmm. You know, here's a picture of a kid that in a, in a weird way too, it's like, so are you saying that that 
that that kid is a less of a kid because he's got autism. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it sort of, it, it like diminishes, like we have to avoid this at all costs the way that this, this poor child is, you know what I mean? Like it's sort of like it, it diminishes the value of that individual. Absolutely. That is a, that is a theme in anti vaccine yeah. propaganda that autism is so horrible. Yeah. And, uh, and yes, there's a lot of people in the autism community are really upset at the anti vaccine community because right. they are so stigmatizing autism in a way that's really inappropriate and hurtful and just, you know, it, it, they say, oh, God, I'd rather, you know, risk dying than have a kid with autism. Really? Right. Really? Right. You know what else people should minimize their exposure to? Jim Carrey? Yeah, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's just really totally off the rails here. But, it is, you know, in a way it's good that, I mean, he's so so crazy. that That's the face we want the public to see of the anti-vaccine movement. And the response was the response was quick and smart, and yeah. every yeah. every story I saw, or almost every story, posted him as being ridiculous. Yeah, you know, and the, like, the direct replies to his tweets. Right, the that's part, the skeptical we're, we're community, guys. That's why we're here. Yeah, yeah, but don't don't read the comments to those articles. Well, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's a whole different universe. Whole different universe. The dark yeah. underbelly. Yeah. Now Facebook. There you there go. You go. For good comments. Lots of good. All right. Well, speaking of Facebook, our question actually comes from Facebook. Uh, One of our followers uh, wanted to know, he said he called out the skeptical alert. Uh, Apparently, in Texas, there was a sighting of a UFO cube. Did you guys see this? (laughs) Oh, my God. The Borg are attacking. Yeah, the Borg. I hope it's real. So... (laughs) It, you know, so this is the funny thing is so if you, on the 10 hour show, Bob brought over his Borg cube, which is a model of, you know, it's only a model Borg cube from Star Trek. An awesome and, one, by the way. Yeah, it was very, very good, very detailed. These pictures look exactly like that. Exactly. Yes. You know, I, I honestly think that whoever, these are clearly faked pictures. Whoever, whoever faked them used that exact Borg cube. model. Yeah, that model or one very similar to it as yeah, their model. I'm fessing a, up, it was me. It's a freaking board cube. I mean, come on. I watched yeah. that video and and the guys talking about a still photo. So there's a still photo of this board cube appearing in clouds, and he says, obviously you can tell it's traveling at a tremendous velocity. I'm like, what? It's a still photo. How could obviously like it could be traveling at any velocity or no velocity? Like you can't tell any velocity from a still photo. I love it. So well, that's because right, you right, don't have a trained have, eye, George. You'd have to that's have your true. shutter speed set. You're to, right. To, I should stop. I should, I should just be assimilated and get it over with. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't it be blurry? Yeah. You know, it's so not blurred in any shutter. direction. So, well, but it's obviously, also like the, the guy that took the picture had the fastest shutter speed of all time. Yeah, Steph, right. 10 Please. million. You don't, you don't know anything about photography, obviously. So, But you read the article <laughs> that accompanies these pictures, <laughs> and this is by Greg Prescott, who you know, is a ufologist and it's full of just magical thinking. So Satan, did you know uh, Satan? Saturn, by the way, is <laughs> what, what we slipped, your mask fell oh, off. Yeah, oh yeah. Oh boy. Saturn apparently <laughs> he makes those connections, like these free associates. Satan is like Kabbalah and the cube of God and the Lord of the Rings and Of course. What? Yeah, so Pan is the god of Saturn and Saturn is Satan in astro theology. Really? Astro theology? When did you So therefore bacon. So like, therefore like the cube <laughs> is is Satan. Uh, 
All right. QED. But here's here's the, the funniest bit, though, for me was when he said, uh, most likely it's some elaborate hoax, a marketing ploy, a hologram. I love that one. <laughs> Um, or a, a PSYOP designed to classically condition our minds in preparation for the official UFO disclosure. So even if it's oh. a hoax, the hoax is meant to, to condition Prepare us for mm. when the U, the reveal comes for the UFOs. So uh, that's all I needed to see was a cube. Anyone who moves is a VC. Anyone who doesn't move is a well-disciplined VC. <laughs> <laughs> so... I find it fascinating to think about things like, what is this guy's life like? Like, does he get out of bed differently than we do? You know, like, how could you possibly have that bent, that that bent perspective and then get up and make yourself a cup of coffee in the morning? So seriously, I think that people have different thinking styles. From a very basic perspective, people do tend to fall into more intuitive versus analytical thinking styles. So somebody who's like at the extreme end of the intuitive end of the spectrum would be their their thinking would be almost unrecognizable to somebody who is more towards the analytical side, which is the skeptical, scientific, you know, evidence based side. To him, he's just there are connections, just all magic and it's all symbolism and I and iconography and conspiracy. It's just that's just the way his mind works. You know what, Jay though, I bet you'd be surprised at how normal he seems. Yeah. I, I bet if you if you met him at a Denny's and we're just we're having a conversation I bet I bet you'd be surprised, like, and then if someone said, "Hey, this is the Borg Cube guy," it'd be like, "What? What?" Well, I think hey, maybe I think you're right, George. You know, no, you can I, so bi- bisect your brain in so many different ways. That cognitive dissonance thing of like, you can, you know, because you have to survive in your day to day existence, and you can't think this way. People that do think this way in their day to day, like minuscule decisions you have to make, are insane. You know, are clinical. You know. And can't function because you can, you know, if you're seeing things in your toothpaste or whatever, like you can't function. So I bet, I bet he's, he's like exceedingly normal. If, if he's not, if this isn't all part of some scam to just buy his videos or whatever or subscribe yeah, yeah. to his web, which it might very well be. I'm going to disagree with you a little bit, George. I mean, I think yeah. that you are describing one subtype. You know, I do think there are people who are very, uh, you know, quote unquote normal in their day to day, but have this walled off, just bizarro belief system that is just their entertainment or whatever. Uh, I also think there are people who are just trying to sell books and this is just a narrative yeah. that they, it's a marketing thing that they hit on, hit on. But have you ever been to a UFO convention? I, I've never done that. And I guess, yeah. 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 So oh, there's boy. also a subset who have the crazy in their eyes. In their right. eyes. Right. In their eyes. <laughs> and they, they it's in the eyes. do have difficulty managing day to day, but it's a spectrum. Sure. And sure. we all know people, let's face it, right? We all have, you know, acquaintances, friends, whatever, who you do wonder how they function in life. They're just not, they're whatever. They're just not quite there. So a lot of, sometimes I meet these people at, whatever, when I'm infiltrating UFO conventions or whatever. And it's like, yeah, this is somebody who just is, you know, you wonder if they're on the right dose of medication and are they being, you know, followed closely Managed. enough by a psychiatrist. Yeah. And yeah. They're, they're on the spectrum somewhere, you know, and, and, and they may be living in their parents' basement because they can't right. function. In fact, you know, we, we know of somebody who has been harassing the skeptical community oh, yeah. who does literally live with his parents and isn't functioning and is in and out of jail now. Yeah, yeah who's a total conspiracy theorist. He's a, he's a couple of notches down, further along that spectrum and to the point where he isn't functioning. So, right. 
yeah, I, I think there's different paths that get people to this sort of belief system. Um, and one of them is just sort of the normal guy, normal person who can function day to day, but has this weird belief system. But not, not a, some of them are are not really functioning well day to day. I had a college professor like that that we used to wonder, like, how does this guy purchase milk? Who operates the appliances? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like how how does how does he oh, drives man. home? He gets into a like a seventy eight Continental and he drives home. Like how are people just not being run over at every every you know half mile? We couldn't fathom <laughs> oh it. He was so he was so particular. He was a music professor. He was just like so yeah, in his yeah. own world. And we would think like how how do you how does he do it? How does he do it? So yeah. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, Quiz Clash. You guys been playing the game? It's been it's a lot of fun. Very fun trivia game that you could play against other people, either random people or or your friends. I love trivia games, and this game has got me hooked. I've been actually playing every day. Like you said, Steve, you can play against friends. You can play against total strangers. It's great. And I love the categories. You know, they talk about some things that we talk about on the show, like alternative medicine, astrology, religion, science, medicine, modern technology, and a bunch of other things. Yeah, guys, if you get on the game, it's free, first of all, which is nice. But uh, SGU listeners will get additional stuff, too. So all you need to do is open up the Quiz Clash game and search for the username SGU, and you will get all premium features for free. Evan. That's pretty cool. It's fantastic. But Evan, it's only for a limited time, so don't wait. <laughs> Download Quiz Ca- Clash for free. Quiz Clash. It's in the App Store. Go now. This is a lot of fun. I've been playing against all the guys, and uh, if you if you come across any IDs with SGU in it, definitely give us you know look for us, and and we'll pl- would love to play with anybody and everybody. Hey, oh Ev. Ev, did you see yeah, the yeah. game that you and I were playing? Uh-huh. One of the trivia questions was like the Charlie bit my finger kid. Did you remember <laughs> that one? I couldn't believe I it. I laughed out loud. It was great. It's, Charlie. It's, it the, no, I said that. I go, Charlie. <laughs> oh, I can't. I, that's great. I play a game and I can't wait to see what the next set of questions are going to be. All right, guys, let's get back to our show. It's time for science or fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious, and I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. All right. Are you guys ready for this week? We have three Steve, three regular news items. Yes, Jay. Tell George how much I've been kicking ass this year. Yeah, yeah. I was wondering, how's Jay doing, Steve? Jay's, Jay's doing okay. He's doing well. Who, who's in the lead? Who's in the lead? Doing, Jay's got a, a slim lead, according to Bob. Slim lead. Yeah. What's that the Bible says about pride and the fall and all that good yeah, stuff? Okay, yeah, okay. Well, yeah. Evan, yeah. I already fell. He's been on the floor for eight years. Item number one. Astronomers have discovered an extremely rare five-star stellar system. Item number two. Researchers have found that the pattern of connections in the human brain is at near-optimal efficiency. And item number three. New research confirms a prior study that humans can distinguish at least one trillion odors. What? No way. All right, Jay, since you're uh, so confident, why don't you go first? All right, so astronomers discovered this five-star stellar system. Steve, could, would you mind expanding on what, what is that? 
Like oh, you're boy. Saying it's, is this five stars in one solar system? That's correct. That are all revolving around each other. That's right. How is he in the lead? <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to actually help you, Bob, because you've been failing so often. I'm trying to get more. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jay. All right. So, I, you know, like I... It can't be that there like there's five stars in a neat circle just spinning around. You know, like they're do- if there's five stars doing this, there's some wacky shit going on. Different sized stars, probably. It just seems very complicated and and epically unstable if it exists. So that one is a big maybe to me. The second one here about researchers finding that there's a pattern of the connections in the human brain as near optimal efficiency. I mean, what the what the hell does that even mean? Near optimal. Uh, that, this one doesn't seem – wow, this is a good science or fiction, Steve, because this one seems like complete BS to me as well. How could our brain possibly be in near optimal efficiency? Especially for some people. And new research that finds that humans can distinguish at least a trillion odors. Oh, my God, Steve. How could how could one of these be – you know, only one of these be wrong? A trillion odors. You know, it's one not like somebody sat there and odors. said, you know, orange, kind of like orange, kind of, kind of like orange. And then, you know, no. Like, That's okay. three. All right, so out of all three of these, I'm going to say this one is the most likely to be true because, yeah, all right, that there is a possibility of with all the different ways that we detect odor that there could be a trillion variations that are detectable but not that anyone has actually detected it. It's just that that's that's like we could see millions of colors, you know what I mean? Yeah, all right, so I'm going to just do this. Process of elimination, yes, I believe we could could determine a trillion odors. The optimal – God, that's really – Getting my go. I'm going to say it's the brain. Optimal brain efficiency is the fake. Okay, Bob. Okay, so uh, yeah, five star uh, stellar system. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a lot. Um, of, I think most of the stars uh, that you that you see in the sky are are, are binaries. Um, if you look close enough, uh, I'm sure there's trinaries. And so, yeah, I could see that there could be a five one. And uh, sometimes you would, you assume that, wait, how could five stars orbit, you know, orbit themselves? And the thing is, though, they can have vast dis- distances between them. Uh, some of them so far away that you, it, it merely looks like a really bright star and not something that was actually even in your solar system. So yeah, it could happen and they're very rare. So I'm totally buying that. Pattern of connection, uh, near optimal efficiency. Yeah, well, that's, Wow, I mean, yeah, I'm not sure what what you know what exactly does it mean to be near optimal efficiency, but you know, evolution is a powerful thing. Um, I'm just it all depends on you know what they mean by that. Uh, so that's a, that's a tough one. Let's see the trillion odors. Yeah, I'm just that just seems like such a gargantuan number. And and I mean, what I know about human olfaction, it doesn't make much sense to me either, because I know that a lot of our a lot of our genes that are associated with with the sense of smell have been mutated beyond function. But factoring that in, I think a trillion is just too gargantuan. That's just like way too big. I I don't think it's quite that big. Um, So I'm going to say that one's fiction. Okay, Evan. I, I look. Hey, I've heard of five star systems before. You know, rate things on the five star system, so you, you can have a five star stellar system. Why not? Yeah, extremely rare. I would think so because you know, the hell that that's got to be a big system in order to have five stars in it. But hey, look, big systems they they must happen at some at some point. The pattern of connections in the human brain near optimal efficiency. This is very nebulous. I think. How, they they have some sort of marker that is optimal efficiency, and then then they judge down from there, and it's near optimal. I'm tricky. That one's tricky. Uh, the last one though, new research confirms a prior study. 
that humans can distinguish at least a trillion hours. Here's the trick with this one, I think. Um, it's about the prior study. Maybe it's more than a trillion. Maybe it's less. I think because you got sort of, you can go in the, in the range either direction. This one leaves itself open to the most, uh, errors. And therefore, I think this one has the greatest chance of being the fiction. So I'm going to say the odors one is the fiction. And George. So Richard Pryor can tell a trillion different smells. Is that what they're saying? Ah, <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Prior study. Gotcha, uh, gotcha. Uh, smells. It smells. It smells is the one. Smells. And if it's not the one, Steve, I'm going to find out that it actually is. I will, I will dedicate <laughs> the rest of my existence <laughs> to proving that that study was incorrect and that oh, they boy. have mistaken that there is some decimal place which was left in a drawer. Uh, I am saying this definitively mm-hmm. that a trillion of anything is indiscernible by any biological creature, let alone some guy with a nose. So I, it's just, I'm, it's the smells and I'm, I'm going to fight you on it. If it is, if it is indeed, if I'm wrong and it's the planets or whatever, I'm, I'm going to, I'm just not accepting it. So it's all the right, smells well, is the fiction. I like well, that. Let's see. So you all agree that astronomers have discovered an extremely rare five star stellar system. You all think that one is science. And that one is science. Yeah, baby. All right. Yeah, this is cool. <laughs> you and your dramatic pause. Do you know how rare it is? It's how rare one. is it? It's probably the second one that we've discovered. Yeah. But what, it's was... only – it's in this system in the constellation Ursa Major. That's only 250 light years away. That's oh, not wow. that far. So, Gee. you know, that tells me that it can't be that rare. But we have to be able to – separate out you know the light from the five stars and that's why it may just be hard for us to really detect yes. them. we can only detect it in ones that are close enough i'm, I'm looking so, under the lamppost for my keys yeah the system is really cool there is one contact binary jay you know what that is a contact binary absolutely not it's they're, when well, they're exchanging matter aren't they yeah they're so close together that they basically share an atmosphere so the two suns are literally in contact. They're, I mean, touching or like there's streams. Their atmospheres, of their atmospheres are touching. Wow, that's they're awesome. Cor- yeah. The coronas? Wow. Yeah, probably um, the corona. Then there's another binary, but this is a detached yeah. binary. So they're not – but they're very, very close. So they're about twice as far away from each other as the diameter of our sun. Mm-hmm. And then there's a fifth star orbiting the detached binary. So imagine, so you got a wow. contact binary, and then detached uh, binary, and then a detached binary with a with another star revolving around it, and then That's these two awesome. clusters, two and three stars, are revolving about each other. God, I'd love to see that. Yeah, at about in, twice in the, the distance of Neptune from our sun. They're all orbiting in the same plane, so they probably formed Ooh. out of the same protostellar disk. Yep, no shenanigans, like no sun systems colliding or anything, and. The astronomer said there's no reason why there can't be planets in this system. So imagine living on a planet revolving about, let's say, you know, the the contact binary in the same system with you are three other stars. Wow. I want to see what that I, sky would look like. But they're all orbiting together. You know, so they would always be clustered together in your sky. You know what I mean? So yeah. You have like Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, let's take these in order. We'll move on to number two. Researchers have found that the pattern of connections in the human brain is at near optimal efficiency. Jay, you're by yourself this time. Again, actually, I should say, 
thinking that this one is the fiction. Everyone else thinks this one is science. So what's it going to be, Jay? Are you going to be another sole winner this week? Or are you going to be the sole loser? Soul winner! This one <laughs> is <laughs> science. Yeah, soul oh. loser! <laughs> All I got to say is, back to the meme. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Regression to the mean. Yeah, so researchers uh, were analyzing the pattern of connections in the human brain to assess its efficiency. As I said, you asked Jay, like, how is it optimal? They were specifically asking if information has to get from one part of the brain to another, is, is the brain accomplishing that communication through the most efficient network possible, meaning the fewest connections and the shortest path? And they found out that, yeah, pretty much the brain is pretty optimized so that the, you know it uses the fewest connections and the shortest pathway possible so it really that the connections are quote unquote idealized it's an idealized brain network um, according to their analysis how efficient we 80, talking I think 89% 89% wow um, is what they came up with yeah so that's why I said near optimal that's the, the thing that evolution's really good at sort of optimizing efficiency that that's Something evolution does well because there's no real innovation necessary. It's just like ants finding the shortest path between, you know, their source and destination. The mathematical analysis of the network that the these researchers did, this was uh, led by a physicist, Dmitry Kriokov, and he used the uh, mathematics derived from John Nash's game theory. Oh, brilliant yeah. mind. Yeah, died, constructed a map of an idealized ago. network and then compared that to the brain. Said, so, yeah, it's pretty good. About 89% is idealized. Of course, that doesn't say anything about the processing that it does, just that it does that processing efficiently. Doesn't tell you how smart you are, in other words. Okay, let's go on to number three. New research confirms a prior study that humans can distinguish at least one trillion odors. This one is the fiction, of course. What the new study... Sh- did was call into question a prior study which claimed that humans can detect at least one trillion different odors, which wasn't generally accepted. It was kind that that study, the study that said that humans can discern a a trillion odors was sort of new and controversial. You know, it was um, out of step with the previous research, but now uh, researchers have done an analysis. This was done by Rick Gerken, an assistant research professor with ASU School of Life Sciences. And he basically, they broke it down and said, you know, the, the problem with the, with the previous paper is that they made a lot of assumptions and that if you use even slightly different assumptions than what they used, you, you get an answer that is different from by orders of magnitude. If you use Slightly more conservative statistical analysis, it would have shown that humans can distinguish only 5,000 odors, not a trillion. So he said that basically with their analysis, we, we have no idea like what the, what the theoretical limit is. And this again, it has nothing to do with like people actually being able to distinguish, like remember and identify these odors. This is just based upon how old olfactory sense works, right. what's the theoretical right. upper limit of how many different odors that system should be able to distinguish? You know, we have different neurological responses to different different stimulus. And essentially, the he 
contradicted the previous analysis, saying that really we don't have enough information. In fact, even just you know within the error bars of what we know, you could come up with answers that are that vary by many orders of magnitude. Not that no, this paper told you yeah, didn't. This paper didn't show that it it wasn't a trillion. Just that we don't know was the answer from this paper. Not that it wasn't. Just mm. to clarify, yeah. All right, George, you won. Yeah, good job. Yay, George! You don't have to. You don't First have to. First time, uh, I think, ever. Yeah. No, I think you, you, no. you won last time as well. Yeah, you're on you a roll. All right. This doesn't smell right, though. <laughs> Evan, do you have a quote for us? I do. Men become civilized not in proportion to their willingness to believe, but in their readiness to doubt. Very pithy. Yes. Amen. H. Okay. L. Mencken. Man. That's a Mencken man. Very Love. witty, witty guy. Yes, that's right. Henry Louis Mencken, American journalist, satirist, cultural critic, scholar of American English, famously known for his reporting on the Scopes trial, which he dubbed the Monkey Trial, and it earned him quite a bit of notoriety. Now, reading, I've read a lot of you know, excerpts from H.L. Mencken, and so tell me what you guys think. Do you think he's more of a cynic or a skeptic? He, well... That's a good question. Yeah. Yeah, wow, it's kind of right. Boy, I think it's right down the line because. Uh, and I was going to say, if you did not know, now you know. Mencken was also a cheerleader of the scientific of scientific progress and very skeptical of and critical of osteopathic and chiropractic medicine. So in oh, that yeah. respect, in that respect, he's um, good good skeptic. Sounds but good he also he also really enjoyed novels. His fam his favorite novel was um, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. By Mark Twain, which obviously is cynicism all over the place in that book, so that influenced him sort of to get into the whole writing career. So it's it's a good debate, I think. That's a good debate. Well, wouldn't, wouldn't you say that like the 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 cynic doesn't care what happens, or the cynic doesn't care how things work, whereas the skeptic desperately cares how things work, wants to know. Yeah. Huh. I think I would. I would I would place him more in the skeptic camp. I would think. Yeah, I think when it comes when it came to scientific issues, he was skeptical. When it came to politics, I, I think he was cynical. Okay. For example, okay. he said, "Democracy is the art and science of running the circus from the monkey cage." Oh my god! I love it. I love it. Every election is a sort of advance auction sale of stolen goods. <laughs> not, that, not that he's necessarily wrong, but yeah, he was cynical about democracy and politics. Hmm. Okay, interesting. Here, here's one about cynicism. He says, a cynic is a man who, when he smells flowers, looks around for a coffin. Oof. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and here we go. One more. I have to give you one more. Marriage is a wonderful institution, but who would want to live in an institution? <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh my god, that's something W.C. Fields would have said. Or yeah, yeah W.C. Fields was famously cynical, right? Oh my gosh, oh, nice. That's great. <laughs> anyway. oh, I have to remember that. Oh, H.L. Mencken, very very witty though. Without whatever very. else you think about him, yeah, cool. So so next week will be our episode that we rec we record at TAM, mm -hmm. and then the week after that we'll we'll you know give you some discussion of how the whole event went all right guys well thank you all for joining me this week you're welcome steve thank you doctor george Bye. always a pleasure thanks guys always always so nice to be here or be here virtually because i'm yeah. right here where i am <laughs> not where you are but we're all together virtually in that space which is the sgu that's right <laughs> and until next week this is your skeptics guide to the universe <laughs>
The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible. Ha ha ha.